0: As you turn to Leviticus 16, it is Easter, uh, an Easter like we've never celebrated before. Uh, I'm here alone and greatly missing uh, my church family uh, to worship um, together, to to celebrate Jesus on on one of our favorite Sundays of the year, to do that. We can and we do celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the life that he gives us every day, yes. Yes. But the celebration on this day is so big because Christ rising from the dead is not a myth or something that we wished would have happened. It is a historical event. And because it took place at the same time as Passover, we're we're even getting the time of the year right. Unlike Christmas, in which most people don't think Jesus was born right around the winter solstice. Jesus Christ was a real person He had a public ministry, he had followers, was killed on the cross by the Romans at the request of the Jews in the first century in Jerusalem. After he was buried on the following Sunday, the tomb was empty. These facts have evidence in biblical historical writings, but also in Roman and Jewish historical writings. So what happened? Why was the tomb empty? Well, we would contend that the best explanation for what happened is exactly what his followers said happened, that he rose from the dead. He appeared to them in small numbers and even at one time to over 500 of his followers. He spent about 40 days with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God, and then he ascended into heaven and he left them with a mission to go tell everyone in all the world, among all people who I am, and what I have come to do and what I accomplished. And guess what? That's exactly what his followers have been doing. The Spirit of God empowered them Uh, to this testimony of Christ, to take it to as many people as possible. And while there have been times that we've done that better than other times, there have been some people who have claimed to be followers of Christ who have gotten it really wrong at times. Overall, the last 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been built, that's been built by Christ, and nothing and no one's been able to stop the growth of the church. Not persecution, not bad doctrine that had to be continually confronted and fixed, Not false doctrine, which had to be refuted, not geography, not death, not famine, not pestilence, or even global pandemics or statewide stay-at-home orders have stopped the church from growing. Because it's Jesus' church built on the person, the work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He said he would build it, and not even the gates of of Hades would prevail against it the church just keeps growing and and even on maybe the weirdest easter that we'll ever experience with some some joy because at least we can do this but there's this deep ache of not being able to be together today the church is still growing like almost every single church right now is broadcasting their services across social media platforms. And so today might be the day in which more Americans will ever hear the gospel at one time as we watch and share and invite other people to join us. And people may actually uh, join because it's just a a click on a screen and not all the awkwardness of showing up in a building like this. And so for the people of The Crossing, thank you for joining in worship. Not, Not what we want, not even really what we like, but it'll do for now until we can be together again in person. And for those who may be turning in who aren't a part of the crossing, my prayer for you is that this time through this medium will be for you an experience with the presence of God in your life. The Word, the Spirit are here. The presence of God is here. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, God will reveal to to you today His great love and grace and desire for you to know Him through His Son, Jesus, whose life Death and resurrection, we celebrate on Easter. So let me pray and then we'll jump into our teaching for today. Father, we are so thankful for your love, your grace, your mercy that you have poured out on us through your Son Jesus. We thank you that Easter means something. It means the tomb was empty, it means that Jesus was alive and is alive. It means that, unlike any other religion, the one on whom our religion is built, our faith is built actually did everything he said he would do and conquered death, sin, and Satan himself. Thank you that we can celebrate that. We can worship you even in strange ways like this. So help us to do that right now. As we're watching this, as we're listening to this, help us to enter into the presence of God and hear from the word of God and let the spirit of God transform us. And may Jesus be glorified in all this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. While as a church, we are reading the Bible through together this year, hoping that with stay-at-home orders, everyone's caught up and continuing to keep pace, on Sundays, we're continuing our journey through the redemption story that we uh, used to refer to the Bible, understanding the Bible as Jesus understood the Bible, and how the Bible is really one story about Jesus and the redemptive plan of God. This is how Jesus explained the Bible to his disciples in Luke 24 and in two of his resurrection appearances, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and then later to the other 11. And so our journey has taken us from the very beginning of creation to the fall of man and sin in the garden, and then God's plan to work through one man, Abraham, through whom he would make into a great nation, through whom eventually the entire world would be blessed. Now, what descendant of Abraham a Jew could possibly be so great that all nations on the earth would be blessed through him. The, the church answer, Jesus. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham and his gospel of good news of life and forgiveness for our sins, has been and is being proclaimed all over the world. And one day, according to Revelation 7-9, there will be a worship gathering around the throne of God from every tribe, nation, people, and language singing praises to Jesus. An Old Testament promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, ultimately perfectly fulfilled in Christ, a promise that we're actually still waiting to be perfectly fulfilled as the gospel continues to go out. Uh, As we've learned in uh, Perspectives on World Missions class that that, uh, Abigail and I have been taking uh, this semester, there are many ways to understand and describe how many people groups have yet to hear about Jesus. Uh, According to the Joshua Project, there are still over 5,000 people groups with 1.8 billion who have such a small number of believers, it's unlikely for anyone else in that people group to hear the gospel from their own people. Those are called frontier people groups. If unreached people groups, groups without a multiplying gospel movement among their people, are also included, you're looking at over 7,000 people groups and over 3 billion people, about 42% of the earth's population. Now that seems, and it is, a daunting task, but it will happen. Matthew 24:14 The good news of the kingdom will be, will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And we're part of doing that now. And maybe as the entire globe is being impacted by this virus, this will also be another way for the gospel to get to more people and more people know Jesus as savior and king. And we're that much closer. To being home. But until then, we keep making him known to all people as he's been made known to us. We saw the promise of God pass from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob and his 12 sons dwelling in Egypt, where God blessed them, and they became uh, numerous, so numerous it made the Egyptians afraid. So they enslaved them until God delivered them through Moses and the 10 plagues and brought them to Mount Sinai, where God would reveal himself to them like never before. They would see his power. His glory, they would get his commands, his instructions, we call them the Ten Commandments, ten general rules about how life would look for them as God's people, traveling to the land he was going to give them to live and be his people. And as they lived out those commands, they would show the world how amazing life could be under the rule and reign of their good, kind, powerful king. They would in a way do what Adam and Eve were supposed to have done, rule with God over creation, and reveal to creation who God is. Now, We know from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve failed to do that. So what about this nation of over a million people? How would they do? Well, not surprisingly, they were colossal failures. As Jesse showed us last week, the dust on the stone tablets hadn't even blown away yet when they began to sin and rebel against God. Yet, how did this holy and mighty God treat them? With more grace. Punishing the guilty? Yes but also allowing Moses to be a mediator and intercede for them so that they would remain as God's people, not just wiping them out and starting over. And he would be their God, and they would continue on their journey to the land of promise with God's presence dwelling with them in a structure called a tabernacle. So when we get to Leviticus, we kind of hit a pause on the journey from Sinai to the land of promise. Tom Schreiner in his book, The King and His Beauty, says, Leviticus stops the narrative and considers how the Lord can continue to live in the midst of Israel, a sinful people. Or another way of putting it is that Leviticus describes how Israel lives in the Lord's presence, a holy God dwelling among a sinful people. Now last week we saw this passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. God is compassionate, gracious, patient, faithful, loving, uh, faithful and loving, truth, forgiving uh, of sins, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So how does that happen? How does a God punish the guilty and still remain compassionate, gracious, loving, and forgiving. Well, what we see fully developed in Leviticus is God's way to make that possible, the Old Testament sacrificial system. One of the key themes that flavor the rest of the Bible, fully established here in Leviticus with a variety of offerings described, instructions given, burnt offerings, fellowship or peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. Um, Some of these sacrificial offerings would be offered throughout the year in response to sin or answered prayer, and and then some would be offered only at special times of the year, festivals or, or holy days. Now, generally, the Jews would offer sacrifice for one of three reasons, in praise and thankfulness to God, to emphasize their prayers to the Lord, and to atone for their sins. And as you've read through the Bible this year, you've read through all of these offerings and regulations, maybe in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, but you may have also gotten to Leviticus 16, which covers the yearly pinnacle of these sin offerings, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Yom Day Kippur means to atone, and atonement simply means to repair and restore what has been broken. In this case, a sacrifice to the Lord that has been broken, a relationship that's been broken by sin. So a sacrifice intended to repair and restore it. Let's see that unfold in Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, he is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. He is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. Next, he will take the two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. After Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and another for an uninhabitable place, he is to present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place, a desolate place, is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for a desolate place. Notice here Aaron is a sinner too. And so the priest, who has to wear certain clothes and clean himself, you, you can't approach God any way you want. He is God. He sets the parameters. He sets the rules. He cleans himself. He comes wearing certain clothes in a certain way on a certain day of the year. And as you'll see later in the chapter, he has to enter alone. He has to first offer a bull as a sin offering for himself and his family because he, he doesn't, as a sinner, belong in the presence of God either. Even though he's the priest, he, he's a sinner too. He slaughters the bull. He sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, the place on the ark of covenant that represents where God's presence dwells. Then he takes these two goats, which will represent the people of the nation of Israel, and he takes the first one and look at verse 15. When he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will take make atonement for the most. Uh, for the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. He would do the same for the tent of meeting that remains among them because it is surrounded by their impurities. Much like the bull, he would do the same with the first goat as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. What about the second goat? Look at verse 20. When he is finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live male goat the one who's not killed but left alive. Verse 21, Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all of their iniquities into a desolate land and the man will release it there. This live goat also called the scapegoat in some translations, would have the sins of the nation confessed over it, and then it would be released into the wilderness or the uninhabitable place to never return. And the end of the chapter says, these are statutes and commands given by God to be done every single year. So let's walk through some things we learn about this Old Testament sacrificial system. First, we learn that it was necessary because of Our sinfulness, necessary because of the sinfulness of humanity. What does it say in verse 6? Aaron brings in the bull for whose sin offering? His and his family. Verse 15, he sacrifices the goat for what? The people's sin offering. Verse 21, it says, Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. All of these animals are being slaughtered as sin offerings for a sinful people. These animals are being slaughtered because the people are sinful. This is not food to eat. These are sin offerings. It's not even a question of if a sacrificial system would be required. It's just a given because humanity, even God's chosen people who have experienced His might, His power like no other people, are deeply broken and sinful. And God is holy, just, and right. So again, how does a holy God dwell among a sinful people? Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve committed one sin. What happened? Y'all got to go. You can't remain here and walk with me in the cool of the day and fellowship with me because sin brings a separation between a sinner and a holy God. God said, if you sin, you will die. Sin brings death and death in its essence is separation. Sin at its core causes separation in our relationship with God. But God's redemptive plan included him having a people who would be his people, among whom he would dwell, that he would enjoy them, and they would enjoy him like Adam and Eve with the Lord in the cool of the day. So how does this happen now that the sins of his people are so constant and God is always holy, just, and righteous? How can these two things coexist? If sin is to be judged and punished and God is to be forgiven, well, who will be judged then? This is where we see the idea of substitutionary sacrifice. Fully lived out, explained in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Instead of the sinner experiencing death, this animal will be killed in his place. As Paul would say later in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin always brings death. And what God ordained was for a, a way for the sinner to continue to live by sacrificing an animal in his place to pay his penalty. On one hand, think about this visible, continual reminder to the Jews of the uh, seriousness with which God takes sin. He is holy, and every single sin is an offense toward His holiness, uh, His righteousness, His justice. Like God God never shrugs His shoulders at sin. God's never like, ah, it's okay, it's, it's not that big of a sin. God never regards sin in that way. He's never dismissive of sin. It is an offense to who he is. After David committed the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, committing adultery with her and having her husband killed, in his confessional prayer in Psalm 51, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. That's not the only people he sinned against. God wasn't the only one that he sinned against. But ultimately, that's who his, his greatest offense was against, was the God who created him and made him a king. Sin brings death separation and brokenness and destruction against God's creative order. But on the, the other hand, we can't imagine killing an animal for such a reason uh, like this today. In fact, this whole aspect of the Bible is so barbaric and primitive. It's a, a huge barrier for some people to even take the Bible and Christianity seriously. Like, how do we take seriously the Bible and our Christian faith when we see this amazing good God ordaining animal sacrifices in the Old Testament for the sins of people. that It just is so foreign to us. Well, one way to come to terms with that is to deal with the idea of guilt. Like you're only going to feel guilty over your sinfulness if you really believe there is a God who transcends our time and space existence. If you're not really convinced there is a God, a God who is good, just, and holy above and beyond our natural existence, and you might not really feel guilty over the weight of your sinfulness. In fact, if you don't really feel any guilt for the brokenness that's inside of you, that could be good evidence that, that you really think this life is all there is. And so it doesn't really matter if you need to strive to live right um, or are good or not. What does it matter? We're just all gonna die and turn back into dirt anyway. Not feeling guilty over your sinfulness might be evidence that you don't really believe you're going to stand before a holy God one day and give an account for your life. But if you do believe in God, or at least you're open to the possibility that God exists, and you do feel the weight of the brokenness in you and in our world, like something is really wrong in this world. There's a deep problem in the heart of man that we cannot fix just by more education or more science and technology, by more celebrities singing songs on Zoom or doing more cute things on TikTok. Uh, even the good side of Twitter is not going to fix what's really broken inside of us. John Krasinski's uh, Good News Network, man, it's amazing. It's it's enjoyable to life. It puts a smile on our face, but that's not ultimately going to fix what's broken inside of us because we know we can't even live up to our own standards for one day, much less God's standards. Our sinfulness and brokenness is very, very deep, and God is very, very Holy. So someone has to pay the price for our sins. Someone has to suffer for our sins. Someone has to be punished for our sins. The sacrificial system was sufficient because God ordained it and graciously provided it for His sinful people to live in communion with Him. It was necessary because of their simpleness, but thankfully it was sufficient because God's the one who set it up and graciously provided it for them to stay in communion with Him. You see this throughout the Bible all along. God is incredibly gracious to provide a way for his people to come back to him, to be his people. Like sometimes we think of the Ten Commandments as some kind of conditional system, some kind of salvation by works that God provided. Like do these and live and, and do these things and save yourself and prove that you merit God's salvation. But remember, the Ten Commandments only come after God had already delivered them from Egypt. And did all the work himself, for which they had nothing to do but to walk out loaded down with parting gifts from the Egyptians. God was gracious to deliver them, gracious to save them through the Red Sea, gracious to bring them to this mountain and meet with him. He is the king. He is a good king. They are his people. I'm bringing you to a land. Now now this is how we're going to live together. Boom, the Ten Commandments and the instructions that followed on how to apply them. Devotion to him, obedience to him, enjoying life as he's designed life to be enjoyed at its fullest. That's the commandment. So yes, if they did them, life would go well. If they didn't, their own community would be filled with sin and brokenness and hurt as they worship false gods and lied and cheated and stole and murdered each other and lived in jealousy and covetousness. But all along, God's been gracious to provide and save them, and he's gracious to provide a sufficient way for them to continue to live in his holy presence As sinful people through the sacrificial system. You see this in God's instructions on how to do the sacrifices, uh, how to set them up, how to carry them out from every small detail. Like it's monotonous to read through Leviticus sometimes because it's just this offering and this offering and this offering and do this and do this and do this. It sounds repetitive sometimes, but that's God giving clear instructions to, to make a way for his people to stay in communion with him like he laid it out. This is how you remain in my presence, even though you're amazingly sinful. Also in Leviticus 17, verse 11, he says, for the, uh, when there's this uh, conversation, he's giving them instructions on not to eat the blood of the animals. He says, for the, verse 11, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives. Since it is the lifeblood, That makes atonement. So, in this passage about not eating the blood of animals, God says to them, I, very personal, I have appointed it to you, the blood of animals. Not to eat, but I've ordained and appointed for that to be used to make atonement for your lives on the altar. In other words, the animal's life and the place of your life. God will accept that because He's ordained and created this system more evidence of his grace. But some might say, well, then why, why do the animals have to die for this? Why couldn't God have created a system where um, he would just say, I forgive you? Why was all the blood and the death necessary? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor during the Nazi Germany years, uh, strived to remain faithful against an evil government, eventually was sent to a concentration camp and was actually executed 75 years ago, this past Thursday, April the 9th, in 1945, right before that concentration camp was liberated, Bonhoeffer writes about forgiveness. He says, All forgiveness involves suffering. If someone offends you and it's a light offense or a small matter, sure, you can probably shrug that off. You know, they're immature. They didn't really intend to hurt me. They were just being foolish with their words or careless with those words or, or whatever. But if someone hurts you deeply, when someone wants to hurt you, intends to hurt, wants to harm you or someone you love, and the wound is very, very deep, when you've been attacked, your family's been attacked, Bonhoeffer says forgiveness will involve suffering. Either you make them suffer through revenge, you get them back. Or you will suffer through forgiveness. And when you truly forgive, you're, you're are choosing not to exact revenge. You're choosing not to harbor bitterness or evil thoughts about them in your heart. And when you truly forgive them, it's going to be incredibly hard, painful, in the deepest part of your being to absorb the wrong that they've done, to swallow that down and not allow it to flavor how you see them for the rest of your life. Like you will suffer in order to truly forgive that person and and set them free. And in essence, set yourself free from the bitterness that you could allow to build up. Now, we're talking about imperfect sinful people with our imperfect and skewed understanding of justice trying to forgive. What about God, who is holy, perfectly just, he measures everything perfectly on His scales of justice for for Him to forgive us who are deeply flawed and sinful. Well, there must be suffering. Again, so so who's going to suffer? Either He will make us suffer for our sins, or He will suffer Himself. Now, ultimately we know He would suffer for our sins through Jesus, but until that day, He instituted a sacrificial system involving animals, where death would be present, that would be a constant reminder to his people, this is what sin does. I am holy and you are sinful and this is what sin does. It brings death, it brings chaos, it brings destruction. This is why I've given you these commands for your good, for your life, for your joy, for your hope, your peace, for the shalom that I want you to experience. This is why you fight against sin, but you're going to mess up. I know you are, and I'm going to continue to be your God, and I will continually allow these animals to take your place. And guys, this went on for thousands of years because the sacrifice of an animal was sufficient because God graciously ordained it, but it was also temporary. They had to continually come and offer more sacrifices because they continually sinned. And so the sacrifices continue to be necessary. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4. Since the law has only a shadow of good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins until one day. One day, there was a man who came and John the Baptist looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world? What hundreds of thousands upon hundreds of thousands of bulls and goats could not do, the Lamb of God has come to do. And he did it. Like this, this is what we celebrate. This is what Easter's all about. This is what Good Friday's all about. Who the writer of Hebrews would say in, in later in verse uh, chapter 10, verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. There's no more work to be done. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever Those who are sanctified, the sacrifice of animals we see in Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament was necessary because they're sinful man. They were sufficient because God graciously ordained that these animals could suffer so that the people could be forgiven in their place. They were a sufficient substitute. But lastly, thirdly, these sacrifices are finished because of Jesus. What the animals could not do, Jesus did, at last, once and for all, The the final sacrifice, the only perfect, sinless human being who ever walked the face of the earth, God himself suffering in human flesh for the sins of his people so that by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Jesus never has to die again. His one death perfected forever his people, those who are sanctified. All your sins, past, present, and future, Forever covered by Jesus. You never have to go find an animal to sacrifice in your place. You never have to ask Jesus to die again for your sins. All your sins are covered, past, present, and future, through Jesus' one sacrifice. So much so that it's not just that your, your sins are covered and, and removed and you're spotless, you're cleansed of those sins, but you also, the Bible tells us, get credit for the righteous life of Christ. So that in God's eyes, when He looks at your account he sees next to your name the righteousness of Jesus, Going, giving credit to your account and your bank account, so to speak. Um, so this Jesus himself said in John 5, verse 24, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is past, past, past tense, past from death to life. This is not something that we have to hope will happen. The promise of God is that it has already happened to those who are in Christ and Christ is in them. Whoever hears and believes these words will not come under judgment, but has already passed from death to life. You're already alive in Christ. You already have eternal life. It's already begun. Romans 8, 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will give an account before God, but it will be an accounting unto rewards. For the treasure that you laid up in heaven, you will not be given; have to give an account that will be a judgment between life and death, eternity with God or eternity separated from God. And his life is in you now, Christian. You are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter and an heir of all the glorious riches of Christ. This is what Jesus has done for you, to bring you home to your Father in heaven. This is what we celebrate Easter weekend. His perfect life, put on trial, After 33 years of life, three years of public ministry, no accusation of sin that stuck, he was completely innocent. The charge against him by the Jews was that he claimed to be the Son of God, which was true. And he died on the cross, and was buried and rose from the dead, which was like one big divine exclamation point. It's all true. Believe and live. Have life. Because he lives, you now live, Christian. In 1955... Billy Graham was invited to to preach to Cambridge University. And the London Times and other papers got word about this, and they began to write about it and started getting letters to the editor and publish those letters. And the people of England, especially the academic class, were mostly appalled that this fundamentalist evangelical preacher was going to come and speak to them. You know, how dare he? We don't need his version of Christianity. And Billy got word of this and was actually kind of reluctant to go, but decided to go anyway, speak for eight nights to a crowd of 2,000 each night. And Billy actually prepared messages that he normally didn't prepare, like messages that were, um, would be more appealing to an intellectual class, kind of give the intellectual defense for Christianity. So he showed up on the first three nights and preached these messages, and just nothing happened. This room full of students and, and academic people and professors and so forth, just no movement of the Spirit. So he gets on the, on the Wednesday night, the fourth night. He says, look, I'm, I'm not preaching the message that i am prepared. Tonight, I'm going to tell you about the cross of Jesus Christ. And he began from the book of Genesis through the rest of the Bible and just walked through every single kind of sacrifice, which was exactly what the people feared he would do. One guy who was in the room was shocked and hor- horrified, like this is the version of Christianity we don't think we need. Uh, one guy who was there said it felt like blood just filled the room. For 45 minutes, he went through this. And at the end, he offered his invitation like he always does, and 400 of the 2,000 people stood and made public decisions for Christ. One guy was a student. Years later, was in a conversation with another guy and they, who was also happened to be there that night. And he was just asking him about his story. When did you really come alive in Christ? When did Christianity really grab your heart? And this guy who was a student becoming a minister said it was 1955 when Billy Graham um, came and spoke to Cambridge University in the in the chapel. He's like, really? Well, what night was it? He's like, it was Wednesday night. And he asked him, well, what happened? He's, he said, I don't really know. But when I left that night, I finally realized Jesus had died for my sins. Imagine walking down the street with a friend and all of a sudden your friend declares to you, I'm going to die for you, and then they jump in front of the next truck that comes down the road, killing themselves. Like, I mean, what would you think of that? You, you, would, you would grieve with this deep, deep sorrow because why did your friend have such a skewed view of friendship and love? Like, why would they think that is something you would ever in 10 million years want them to do? But if you and your friend were walking across the street together, and, and you were about to step into the path of an oncoming truck, and your friend pushes you out of the way so that you can live, he himself absorbs the blow and ends up dying. Well, how would you feel about that, friend? Like, there wouldn't go a a day the rest of your life that you wouldn't think about that act of sacrificial love, that act of him giving up his life so that you could live. Um, It would flavor absolutely the rest of your life. Like You would forever feel this debt of gratitude to him. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and absorbed the wrath of God for your sin, so that you could live. Christian, this drives everything we do. This is what we mean by gospel-centered life. It begins with Christ. Each day, each desire, each opportunity, each minute, each relationship, everything is His because your life is His life. Your time is His time. Because He gave Himself up so that you can live, everything in your life is to be lived for His glory because His life is inside of you. And the beautiful thing is just like obedience to God's commands, this is your path to life at its best. Like, not this superficial, well, because I'm a Christian, I'm not going to suffer or get sick. I'll always be wealthy. I don't even have to do social distancing during a pandemic because I got spiritual teflon on me that and that will keep me safe from any virus. No, the Bible doesn't promise that to a follower of Christ. His followers have died along with everyone else, suffered along with everyone else. Jesus doesn't always provide us a way out of trouble, but he always promises to be with us through the trouble, so that even as we suffer and die like everybody else, we do it with joy and hope and peace because we're not living just to make this life as amazing as possible. We are living for another kingdom, another home to lay up our treasure in heaven. And non-Christian who may be watching or listening, Jesus has come to give you life and to reconcile you back to the God who created you, to bring you home to your Father in Heaven, to take you from being an enemy of God to being a dearly loved, adopted son or daughter of your Father in Heaven, to be brought into the family through Jesus, never to be kicked out again, ever, to have a forever home, to be fully loved and set free, to fully give yourself to love others and live as God's created and designed you to live, to come to know God's great love through his son Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can do that right now wherever you're at. Admit you're a sinner like all of us who need a Savior and Jesus alone qualifies. Jesus alone has done everything necessary for you to be made right with the God who created you, for you to be fully forgiven, to be reconciled back to God and brought into his family. We as a church would love to tell you more, to invite you into our lives, to help you understand what it means to follow Jesus, be one of his people. You can contact us through our website or social media channels, Uh, just about anybody who's watching this live. You could probably contact them. You may know somebody who is a Christian or attends a local church. Reach out to them. But know, this Easter, Jesus has come to give you life. Find him, believe in him, and live. Father, we are so thankful for your love, your grace, your mercy that allows us to live because Christ lives. Thank you, Father, for providing this way back to you, for bringing us home, for sending your Son to bring us home, to do everything necessary. Thank you that we can't do it. Our good works are not enough. They're... they're, woefully short of who we need to be to be right in your eyes, that only Jesus and trusting in him allows us to be forgiven and free. I pray for all those who are watching or listening that today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day of the joy of their salvation returning. Today would be the day of a growing affection and love for Jesus as they are trusting in you and hating their sin. Bless the preaching of your word in all the places it's being proclaimed today. Bless the spread of your gospel in all the places it's going today. May Christ be glorified by growing his church in Jesus' name.